Hey everyone, welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology, Bit by Bit. This is your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan, coming to you from just outside of Philadelphia, where I teach at Bucks County Community College. Today's episode, we're going to continue on with the brain. Specifically, I think we're going to talk about the barrier systems that the brain has to protect itself from the potential toxins that are found in our bloodstream. And also, we're going to talk about cranial nerves, which are the 12 pairs of nerves that innervate your head and neck and come directly from your brain and brainstem without having to go through your spinal cord. So uh, those are pretty interesting and clinically very significant. So if you are a future clinician, uh, you're going to want to pay close attention to that. But before we do that, I want to share with you a conversation that I had with a good friend of mine whose name is Dr. Kevin Petty. He is a full professor of anatomy and physiology at San Diego Miramar College in San Diego, California. And he runs a program that I am intensely interested in where he takes students from San Diego State University to Italy and they study anatomy using the artwork from all of these amazing Italian artists. Michelangelo, Da Vinci, Raphael, uh, you name it, all of these sculptures and paintings and reliefs and frescoes, they've got this unbelievable attention to detail in human anatomy. And he tours Italy all up and down from Venice to Sicily, studying anatomy using the artwork. It is an amazing program. And he is an Italian-American. He has dual citizenship with the United States and Italy. Uh, I believe he speaks Italian, which really helps. And the program is enormously successful. I know some people who've been on it. I've never gone, but I am interested in doing that one of these days. But um, it it is really interesting. In addition, Dr. Petty used to be the president of the Human Anatomy and Physiology Society. So he is a president emeritus. He was actually the president of HAPS when I went to my very first HAPS conference, and I believe that might be the first time we've met. He is also a co-author on a textbook called Visual Anatomy and Physiology, which is published by Pearson and is a very popular textbook used by A&P students all over the place. In fact, you may be using it if you are an A&P student right now. Uh, In addition to that, Kevin has been all over the world, all over the U.S., uh, invited to speak in places like D.C. and Houston and New York and Los Angeles and Palermo in Sicily. He has been recently highlighted on Chinese television for a documentary called 200 Years of Surgery. He's a really impressive guy, and he's got a lot of really good insight. He's been teaching anatomy and physiology for quite some time now. So I think you're going to enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right. So welcome, Dr. Kevin Petty. Uh, How are you doing? I'm very well. and Thank you so much for inviting me. I feel honored to be affiliated with your programming. Uh, Well, I appreciate that. It's it's my honor for sure. Um, So so tell me a couple things about you, Um, uh, Kevin. Where do you teach? I teach at San Diego Miramar College, which is in San Diego. That's my full-time gig where, like you, I teach human anatomy and physiology. Also teach a human dissection course, which is like a second semester anatomy course. Um, 
to prosect the cadavers that we use in the other courses. It's a pretty small program. I have three donors, but I love doing that. I also teach a course in health and human behavior. So it's a survey class for all the students that I, I truly love. So I love getting that uh, diversity of students where you get the students that are preparing for health careers, as well as the general student where a lot of the applied things we talk about in the anatomy and the physiology, we just exclusively discuss those. And then I also teach adjunct faculty at San Diego State University, where I teach study abroad to Italy, connecting anatomy and art in Italy. Well, that is really interesting. Um, I'm very interested in that program. You and I were actually in Italy at the same time earlier this year. We just didn't get a chance to meet up. I think we overlapped by about 12 hours in Rome. And um, unfortunately, but um, before we get into that, let me just ask you one quick question that I may know the answer of. Are you originally from Southern California? No, I am originally from Northeast Philadelphia. And yeah, as you that. probably know, I'm a big Eagles fan, and I can't believe the way the dumb luck that this worked out. The Eagles and the Giants played last night, and I know you're you're a North Jersey guy, right? And a Giant. I, I am originally from Northern New Jersey. Yeah, and I don't know if you watched that game last night, but win or lose, that was as painful as it gets. Two teams that really aren't that very good, and one of them had to win at the end, and uh, my guys pulled it out last minute. It was awful. I did watch it, unfortunately, and um, I'm not sure exactly when this episode will air, but probably um, a couple of weeks after the that actual game. But but either way, it was it was painful for me to watch, and I knew that I was talking to you this afternoon. <laughs> so, but um, anyway, so I want to know more about the Italy program that you run. So. Is this something that only San Diego State students have access to, or can someone else join up with that? And then, but first, before we even get into that, tell me, tell me what it is. What what do you do in Italy? Yeah, so um, you know, I'm of Italian descent, and uh, I've actually have dual citizenship with the United States and Italy through my family, although I was born here. And I've always, you know, loved my culture like all of us, the way I grew up in it all. And um, then as I started to get into our careers that, that we both have here, it was actually at a HAPS conference, Human Anatomy and Physiology Society, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a gentleman was given a talk about um, anatomical textbooks, the first original modern, modern meaning 16th century, right? Anatomy books, I thought they were all stunningly beautiful. Hey, they all began in Italy. Anatomy in the medical curriculum began in Italy. So it really like struck this chord with me. I just read more and more about it. Then when it came time for us to take the kids abroad as part of their education, you know, when they were in their teens, I wanted to have them, ha wanted to have them have that experience with Italy. And of course, I'm, dad made us go and visit all these wacky anatomy museums, you know, and that was it. And then I started to talk about it with my Habs friends like you and all my Habs friends were saying, man, I'd love to go and visit those venues, but I wouldn't know where to begin. So I posted it on the Habs listserv and more and more and more of our colleagues started going. So since 2014, I've been running programs to Italy with, with Haps folks like you and, and anyone could go that people brought their spouses and so forth. And then San Diego state said, Hey, we heard you're doing this thing. Some of my mentors, they said, you know, we're having more and more study abroad. You might find this interesting, Steve at San Diego state and the college of health and human services. And I'm an alum of that college. You have to do a study abroad experience with a bachelor's degree now. And uh, they said, we feel like there's not a lot for our mostly pre-physical therapy students, you know, so, and, and you know how our science students really can't take a whole semester off. It puts them back almost a whole year by virtue of how rigid their programs are. So they said, can you do a two week program in winter or, and, or a two week program in summer to distill it down? And I have a, you know, so I built this, this 
course that has a lot of online stuff before and after, but the actual travel components just two weeks. So the answer is yes and no. You know, the courses that I run for professional development colleagues is really open to anyone, you know, that has an interest in the art and science connection. And I've had people come that were um, portrait artists and um, librarians that just came along and said, hey, I love it's like living a discovery channel. You know, of course, it's not like exactly what I do, but it was great. Or the undergrad one. Uh, is really geared for San Diego State, but it's kind of weird. It's through their extended studies, which is open to anyone. You don't have to be an SDSU degree-seeking student. So students have said, hey, you know, a gal I grew up with um, goes to Cal State Fullerton. Can she enroll? And yes. And then we've gotten them transfer. So I have a few flavors of this that folks could participate in, even if they're not an anatomist, even if they're not an SDSU student. So I hope that big, long, circular explanation answers what you were asking. No, that was great. I, I love that idea. And, and I love the way it started. In fact, I'm not sure how, how much I'm dating us, but my very first national conference for HAPS, which was, I think you may have been the president that year. It was Baltimore in 2009 was my first, um, was my first HAPS and you are a past president of HAPS. And, um, so I, I remember, I think I met you at that meeting 11 years ago. And um, so, but I'm, I'm very excited to hear. I mean, I know that like a lot of my listeners might know that uh, a lot of anatomy books use the Terminologica Anatomica, which is, from, which is in Italian uh, as the basis for terminology for anatomy. And, um, and having you go into and take students into Italy where you've got all this Renaissance art where the, where the detail is so amazing in the sculptures and in the paintings of the anatomy um, so what's the, what's the connection you use between the art and the anatomy to use for teaching and learning? Yeah, that's, that's a great series of questions there. So, you know, I have these students that are students like ours that are planning for careers, probably in some sort of allied health, physical therapy, nursing, physician, dentistry. So they have that sort of mindset. And as you know, they're pretty bright students, a lot of them, but they're so everything's either chemistry or, or biology, you know, and I feel like they're not and they agree, you know, they're sort of deprived of the humanities in their education, which they have interests in. And this course tries to introduce the humanities into the sciences. So let's look at this sculpture. Some of them are ancient, you know, Hellenistic, you know, early Roman empire ones to the Renaissance. And then let's look at it for its beauty and, and what it took to create it. And let's also look at it for its anatomical accuracy. And, you know, like something that all our listeners know, Michelangelo's David, the way he's standing with all his weight on his right leg and less on his left leg, you just look at his lower limb and you see which muscles are tense and which muscles are softened. Because Michelangelo wanted to give the appearance of movement. How do I make something that's static look like it's moving, right? You know, well, you have to have the musculature be right. You don't have to be an anatomist to say that looks like a body in motion or not, you know? And the anatomy is so correct, it's not by dumb luck. It has to be because they were studying the body even with dissection. And there's plenty of literature that these anatomist, not just Michelangelo or Leonardo, part of their training was to conduct anatomic dissection, you know, during the Renaissance, that was part of it. They were Renaissance men, right? Now, you know, at universities and colleges, you got the science people here and you got the business people here and you got the math people here, you got the biology here and the chem here. That wasn't like that then. Everybody studied everything, you know? So you studied painting and sculpture and math and geometry and astronomy, astrology back in those days, right? And anatomy in there. And, you know, I, I, you'll love this. I was at 
in Florence looking at the David with my undergrads just a year ago. And this one student, she was a, a nursing student. She says, I could start an IV on that hand. Like looking at David's right hand that's hanging down there because she was looking at it because right then she was probably training and starting hand IVs and that's what was in her head. So she has this anatomical hand in her head. She's looking at this sculpted hand and saying, I, I know everything there, you know, from my anatomy. And she's looking at the art and the anatomy together. And that's really what it's all about. You know, giving that appreciation, the whole mind, the sciences and the humanities are connected. And just so happens that with anatomy, you're right, the vocabulary, the first universities introducing the cadaver and the medical curriculum all began there. So then you go and you visit the old dissection theaters and these ancient anatomical collections that are largely off exhibit because I have some friends in, in, you know, who teach anatomy in the medical schools there that they open them up to us and host us. They really get this science art thing, going to the famous museums like the Uffizi and the Vatican museums, and then going to these anatomy museums at um, you know, Florence and Padua and so forth. That's fantastic. I mean, you know, that, that whole David thing, and, and listeners now, if you're not familiar with uh, the statue of David, Google it because the detail, like I can imagine that your student could see because I remember I was in Florence just just less than a year ago right before COVID hit and you can see the veins on the hand of this statue and also it's enormous right so I'm wondering here's one more question for you as as such an astute anatomist as I know you are uh, I had a guest on um, recently and he one of his one of his passions or one of the things he finds most interesting about studying anatomy and the skeleton is um, the differences between male and female. Knowing what I know about Michelangelo, that even if he was sculpting a female, he used a male model. Do you think that that influenced any of anything? Do you think, do you find anything sometimes in the art that's incorrect because he was using a male model to sculpt a female? Yeah, that's an interesting line of inquiry that a lot of people talk about. And that's one of the comments that students make a lot, especially if you've, if you've been to the Medici chapels uh, where there's these tombs, uh, night, day, dusk and dawn, and it has a male and a female sculpture on top of each of the tombs. So there's two females that are in there, two males. And the females look like males with breasts on top, you know? Right. And what's the story on that? Students go, what's the story on that? It's not a very feminine. Well, what was... We, we have to also supplant what we think feminine form is in our 21st century mind to what femininity was in those days, right? Where women much more robust pioneer women for them to be able to step to survive, right? You know, so there was that more masculine female probably existed more there. But even then, I don't think it explains all of it. You know, maybe it also has to do with other perspectives. If we really want to dig into the, to the deeper layers, um, the, the, the scholarship is pretty clear and it's largely accepted that Michelangelo was homosexual. And, you know, so when you look at the, the female form, did he see more of a male form or did more of a male form speak to him than more of a female form? Plus he was a sculptor and maybe it's, it's more likely to sculpt robustness than it would be softness. But we know there are some beautiful feminine sculptures out there. Like when you look at the right. works of Canova and so forth. So there's a lot of questions that are out there. And I think the beauty of this too, Steve, that I like with these students, you know, and I don't know if we're going to get there, but in the Sistine Chapel ceiling, there's a lot of this discussion about anatomical body parts being up in the ceiling, like the brain and the creation of Adam. And um, so that's in the literature. And then students say, okay, but did he really mean to put body parts up there? Or did he really mean this? And we don't know. 
And one of the exercises I like is our students that are biology students, science students in general, they are trained to solve for X. They want to know the answer. Am I right or am I wrong? Am I right or am I wrong? Sometimes there are questions in academia that there, I don't want to say there's no right or there's wrong. It's just that there's, there's a line of scholarship supporting this idea and there's a line of scholarship supporting that idea. Why don't we weigh some evidence and tell me what you think based upon this evidence when there's no clear answer? That's uncomfortable for a lot of our students because they want to know the answer. And you know what? Sometimes there's not the answer. And if, is this a vehicle for teaching them and their careers to think differently? to just not be thinking, uh, my whole job is to know whether I'm right or I'm wrong. Sometimes you gotta think outside that and say, you know, we don't really know, but this is what I, I got my, my best hunch based upon the data that I have here. So there's really good elements of this exercise of introducing the humanities into the sciences. That is super interesting. I love this. Kevin, is there a, a website or anything that listeners could possibly um, check out to learn more about your program? Absolutely. So uh, it may be a bit of a mouthful, but, you know, I have this little side gig, right? Anatomia Italiana, just like you would think it would be spelled. If you go there, you land on my landing page where I outline my travel programs for undergrads and professor friends. But there's one page in particular where I think I, I call it resources or academic resources, where I post PDF journal articles that support the underpinnings of this idea, connecting art and anatomy you know, in there. And students could look at those, look at the scholarship that says, hey, I think that there is a mid-sagittally sectioned brain that God is reaching out of in the creation of Adam. I think that in another panel in the Sistine Chapel ceiling where God separates light and darkness, that that funky view looking up at the base of God, God's neck is really showing his brain superimposed inside there. I think in the other image where God is coming out to separate the land from the waters, that that's a kidney, you know? What's a better image for God than the brain? What's a better image for separation of waters by that kidney-shaped structure, you know? I don't think that's by accident. Maybe some people do, but here's the literature to support it. Here's what the, the anatomists, the, the physiologists, and the art scholars are all talking about. So you could read those journal articles at that website. And I've got a couple of, like, interviews like we're doing here posted there as well, which people may find interesting. I love that. Thank you so much. Um, this, this was a really, really interesting conversation. I know we've had smaller conversations about this in the past in person, um, uh, in times that we've gotten to see each other. And um, I've been interested in this program of yours since you told me about it for the first time. And perhaps, um, perhaps I could join you on one of your Italy trips and learn more about this program. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to let my listeners know about this and to also tell me more about it. And I will post a link to your website on the information page for this episode so that way people can find it more easily. Thank you so much, Stephen. It was my pleasure. I appreciate your interest. I think we think a lot alike, you know, in this way of just trying to stimulate student thinking in different ways. And, um, I, it's my pleasure to think that maybe sometime we could we could go abroad together, have a glass of wine and, and a nice meal while we're having the same conversation, you know, after having visited some of these museums earlier in the day. I think that would be a, a real treat and a real thrill, especially if we had our families with us too at the same time. Well, I am very much looking forward to that, Kevin. Thank you so much. And I hope to see you soon. You too, my dear friend. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Kevin Petty. 
that was a great conversation. I really appreciate him joining us. And thanks so much for listening to it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So it's time to get moving on with the brain. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about the blood supply to the brain, but just a little bit because really that's a conversation for the circulatory system. But I want to get through some of the basic um, important aspects of the brain's blood supply. So the brain gets its blood supply from four main arteries coming up from the heart. Two vertebral arteries, a left and a right, and those arteries come up through the transverse foramina of the cervical vertebrae. Remember that the cervical vertebrae, their transverse processes have holes in them, and those holes are called foramina, or foramen, if you're talking about one. Those foramina, when stacked up on each other, they make kind of a kind of a canal system, even though it's not a closed canal, but a system where these arteries can travel up through each foramen one by one until they eventually get to C1, or the atlas, the first cervical vertebra. At that point, they go through the transverse foramina of the cervical one, or the atlas, C1, and then they make a, a quick little turn medially and then go up into the foramen magnum of the occipital bone where they can um, form a circle uh, as they enter the brain, as they go up around the brainstem. And that circle is called the circle of Willis. And then a bunch of arteries just kind of branch off from that circle to supply a whole area in the, in the brain there. And we'll talk more about that in the circulatory system. But, um, but that's just two of the arteries. Those are the two small ones. The big ones are the common carotid arteries, a left and a right. And they come up the neck on each side, and then they split into an internal and external carotid artery, and the internal carotid artery goes into the foramen magnum and uh, of the occipital bone and then branches off into arteries that supply the brain. So the brain has a really extensive blood supply. Even though it's not a huge proportion of your body's size or weight, it gets a really big supply of blood like every minute. Every minute up to 750 milliliters of blood per minute. That's like a, a bottle of wine. That's the size of a bottle of wine going into your brain every single minute. And the reason why is because the brain doesn't store any glucose. So it consumes a ton of its oxygen and glucose from that blood supply. One of the reasons for this is because the main structure of the brain, which is neurons or nerve cells, they, they use a lot of energy. They need a lot of energy to perform their functions. And so they're, they're utilizing ATP at a really, really high clip. So it's really, it's the reason why um, someone can faint if, if their neck is compressed. Like if you put someone like in a sleeper hold in wrestling or something like that and you compress their carotid arteries and their vertebral arteries, you can have that person or that person can lose consciousness pretty quickly from a lack of blood supply to the brain. Also, consider when your blood sugar is low and some of the first symptoms you experience are lightheadedness and dizziness and a headache. Um, you know, those are the kinds of things that are associated with a lack of glucose or oxygen, ATP, to the neurons of the brain. When there's a disruption of the blood supply to the brain, 
like if there is a damaged blood vessel that opens up and blood is leaking into the brain, um, we call that a cerebrovascular accident, a CVA, or sometimes people, people call it a stroke, right? And so uh, you might hear the word brain hemorrhage. That is when there's significant blood loss around the brain. And not only does it cause the brain to lose its blood supply and its oxygen and its glucose, but also it causes it to uh, build a lot of pressure around the brain. I talked about this in the last episode a little bit, um, where you have pressure uh, building up around the brain that has nowhere to go but compress the brain because the skull is a rigid, hard bone structure. So uh, that's a pretty significant issue. And th there's, there's um, high incidence of strokes and cerebrovascular accidents, uh, especially in the United States. It's one of the top five causes of death. And um, it, is, it is really common. Sometimes you'll hear the term aneurysm. And a lot of times people mistakenly refer to an aneurysm when they really mean a stroke or a brain hemorrhage. Um, so an aneurysm is really is when the the artery has a weakened spot in the wall and that the pressure of the blood inside causes that weakened spot to form like a bubble and it pushes out on it and, um, and the blood can pool in there and the wall gets really weak and when the pressure overcomes the strength of that wall, that aneurysm can rupture and that's what you usually hear about when you hear about someone who had an aneurysm uh, really... The aneurysm itself is not the rupture. The aneurysm is the defect in the artery, which can be caught. You can see an aneurysm on an MRI or a CT scan. Um, and aneurysms don't only occur in the brain. You get aneurysms in your abdominal cavity, the abdominal aorta, in your chest cavity, um, in your thoracic aorta. Uh, you can get aneurysms. And they don't always have to be these bubbles either. They could be a rupture in the wall of the artery that causes blood to collect inside the wall of the artery. That's called a dissecting aneurysm. So I know we're getting into the circulatory system a little bit, but this is kind of interesting because people mistakenly use that term aneurysm when really what they mean is a brain hemorrhage or really what they mean is a ruptured aneurysm, which is the, the big problem. Now, one thing we know about uh, neurons, and especially central nervous system neurons, uh, which make up the bulk of the functional part of brain tissue, um, in addition to neuroglia, like astrocytes and oligodendrocytes, ependymal cells, uh, microglia, um, this brain tissue is not very good at regenerating. So when it gets damaged, it's not something that you're really going to be replacing. So we have to be super careful with our brain tissue because it is so fragile and irreplaceable. So our blood has a lot of stuff in it that's potentially harmful to our um, brain tissue. So uh, some of those things would be um, uh, the toxins that bacteria produce. They could be um, phagocytic cells of our own immune system, antibodies of our own immune system, um, other harmful things that we consume in our bodies, toxins that we bring into our bodies. These things could be potentially harmful to our brain tissue. So therefore, the 
capillaries in our brain have a barrier system, the brain barrier system that regulates what kind of substances can leave the bloodstream and enter the brain tissue. And that's a really important thing. And there's two main components to it. There's the blood-brain barrier, and that is surrounding the capillary walls uh, that are entering the brain tissue to supply glucose and oxygen and nutrients and take away waste products and things like that. And basically what that is, is these astrocytes, which are neuroglia that are only found in the central nervous system, they have these tentacles. They're like star-shaped. That's what astro means. And they've got these tentacles that reach out and contact the capillaries and kind of wrap around them and they stimulate the cells of the capillary. So a capillary is a microscopic blood vessel and it's one row of epithelial cells thick. So you've got squamous cells, squamous epithelial cells, one row of them, a simple squamous epithelium with a basement membrane. That's a capillary wall, nothing more. Simple squamous epithelium and a basement membrane. So what you want, what the, what the astrocytes do is they stimulate those, those cells of the capillary called endothelial cells to form tight junctions with each other, which are um, like a really good tight fit where the cells are locked together, right? Cell junctions are the proteins, the plasma proteins that allow cells to bind to one another. Well, tight junctions are a really, really good seal. And that helps to regulate the materials that are allowed to leave the blood capillary and get into the tissue of the brain because you don't want to let everything out. When you have a tight junction between two epithelial cells, and that tight junction is like a watertight seal, like a Ziploc bag, when you have a tight junction like that, then you make it so that no blood plasma can go in between the cells. So we haven't gotten to the circulatory system yet, so we don't know what intercellular clefts are and fenestrations are, but capillaries, though in most places in our bodies, those capillaries have cells that come together, but there's still some space in between the cells. And that allows blood plasma to filter out and to be reabsorbed back in. But that's way too easy going for the brain. So we don't want that to happen. What we want is for the cell membrane of those squamous cells, those endothelial cells, to be the regulators of what passes in and out. They will be much more restrictive in what they allow to pass through than just an intercellular cleft or a space between those cells. So in the blood-brain barrier, you've got astrocytes, the neuroglia of the brain, stimulating those endothelial cells to form tight junctions with each other so that the plasma membrane, so membrane transport is determining what gets out to the brain tissue, not just filtering through a space. And that's a really important one. Another thing that we have is the blood CSF or cerebrospinal fluid barrier. Now inside the ventricles of the brain, lateral ventricles, third ventricle, fourth ventricle, are these networks of capillaries called the choroid plexus. And the choroid plexuses are underneath the lining of those ventricles. Now remember, spaces are lined with epithelial cells, and the neuroglia 
of the brain that lines those ventricles are called ependymal cells. And those ependymal cells also have tight junctions. And those tight junctions surround the choroid plexus because the choroid plexus is underneath the lining. It's deep to the lining of the ventricles. So the, the ependymal cells cover the choroid plexuses with these tight junctions, and then they regulate the materials that are allowed to pass through from the choroid plexus into this, the ventricles, where the blood plasma of the choroid plexus becomes the cerebrospinal fluid of the brain ventricles. However, it has to go through these ependymal cells that are held together with tight junctions to make sure that only the proper materials get through and no damaging materials get through. So we have the blood-brain barrier between the blood vessels that supply the brain with blood and the blood-CSF barrier between the choroid plexuses and the CSF-filled ventricles of the brain. So this is a really important um, thing to remember because damage to the blood-brain barrier, whether it's from some kind of chemical damage, whether like, um, you know, you, you um, have a disease process or you have something you've consumed that damages it, or trauma or a disease process can cause some serious issues with brain damage. So um, we don't want that. We don't, we don't want that. But it also makes it somewhat challenging, right? Because antibiotics can't cross the blood-brain barrier. So treating a brain infection is actually really challenging. And a lot of, of pharmaceuticals can't cross the blood-brain barrier. So you have a condition like, let's say, Parkinson's disease, and you want to treat it with dopamine, which is the neurotransmitter that is deficient in Parkinson's disease, and you can't because dopamine doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. So it's hard to just give someone dopamine and then, uh, you know, and have them be okay because it doesn't work. It can't get to where it needs to go. So, um, so they have to use a different type of medication called L-DOPA, which, which is a precursor. And then that can cross the blood-brain barrier. And then you want the, that to uh, do the role of dopamine. So it, it it's protective of the brain, but clinically it makes things really challenging for treating the brain. Before we get started talking about each individual cranial nerve, I want to explain where they come from. So when we talk about neurons and nerves, their cell bodies are found inside the central nervous system, and that location is called the nucleus. So the nucleus of a cranial nerve is the location where the cell bodies are in the central nervous system. So for 10 of those cranial nerves, that's in the brainstem. For the other two, it is going to be elsewhere, outside the brainstem. So let's run through them 1 through 12 real quick, and I will say where they come from, where their nuclei are, and then we'll talk about them specifically. So cranial nerve 1 the olfactory nerve, and cranial nerve 2, they have their nuclei outside of the brainstem. Uh, the olfactory nerve nuclei are right inside the cranial cavity at the olfactory bulb, and the optic nerve, the cranial nerve 2 nuclei, they go um, out toward the thalamus. Now, cranial nerves 3 and 4 have their nuclei in the midbrain. Cranial nerves 5, 6, 7, and half of cranial nerve 8 they are in the pons, 
The other half of cranial nerve 8 is in the medulla oblongata with 9, 10, 11, and 12. So 1 and 2 outside the brainstem, 3 and 4 are in the midbrain, 5, 6, 7, and half of 8 are in the pons, and the other half of 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, come from the medulla oblongata. All right, let's talk about them individually. There are 12 pairs of cranial nerves, and they are uh, numbered with Roman numerals, 1 through 12. They're bilateral, so there's one on each side. And, um, and they start up in the brain. There are two that are not associated with the brain stem, and those are cranial nerves 1 and 2. So I'm going to start with the lower numbers, which means I'm starting in the superior most region, which is the brain itself. Cranial nerve 1 is called the olfactory nerve, and that's because it is a sensory nerve for the sense of smell. The olfactory receptors are in the nasal cavity, and they are triggered by odorant molecules that are entering your nose and dissolved in the mucus of your nasal cavity. And then they send a nerve signal up, up through, those, um, through that sensory neurons, through those sensory neurons and through the cribriform foramina, which are tiny little holes in the, in the anterior floor of your skull, and then they synapse with what's called the olfactory bulb, and then they end up on a pathway so that your brain can perceive a sense of smell. So cranial nerve one is the olfactory nerve, which is sensory for smell. Cranial nerve two is the optic nerve, which is basically a... a um, a big thick nerve in the back of your eyeball and all the nerve fibers of your retina come together to form this disc in the back of your eye called the optic disc and that's the beginning of the optic nerve. The optic nerve is for sensory and it's sensory for vision. So light striking the retina is what triggers or stimulates the the um, sorry the optic nerve. And then it's going to do a lot of stuff that we'll talk about in the sensation chapter, but, um, but it's sensory for vision. Those two nerves do not go through the brainstem. The rest do. And we're going to start with cranial nerve 3, which is also known as the oculomotor nerve. The oculomotor nerve is a motor nerve, so it stimulates the muscles that move your eyes. Now, not all the muscles. There are six muscles that move your eyes. They're called the extrinsic muscles of the eye. And of those six, four of them are innervated by the oculomotor nerve, cranial nerve three. So it, so it insists in moving your eyes so that you can track objects and look around the room without having to move your head. It also controls the eye that constricts your pupil. I'm sorry, it controls the muscle that constricts your pupil. And that is for um, pupil constriction so you can regulate the amount of light that enters your eye. So if you shine a light in someone's eye and you see the pupil constrict, you are stimulating the optic nerve with light, that's cranial nerve 2, and then you're creating a reaction in cranial nerve 3, the oculomotor nerve. That's a reflex, the pupil reflex. Cranial nerves 4 and 6, they innervate the other two extrinsic muscles of the eye. 
Cranial nerve 6 innervates a muscle called the lateral rectus. And cranial nerve 4 innervates a nerve, a muscle called the superior oblique muscle. And um, cranial nerve 4 is also known as the trochlear nerve. And cranial nerve 6 is also known as the abducens nerve. Which means we skipped cranial nerve 5, which is called the trigeminal nerve. The trigeminal nerve is a big, thick nerve. It's the biggest of the cranial nerves. And it branches out into muscles that innervate the skin of your face for sensory, especially your, the lower half of your face, so that you can feel sensation on your skin in the lower half of your face. But then the trigeminal nerve also has a motor component. So the trigeminal nerve, or cranial nerve 5, is a mixed nerve. has both sensory and motor components. So far, what we've seen are mostly leaning in one direction. Olfactory and, and, oh, I'm sorry, olfactory and optic are sensory. Oculomotor, trochlear, and abducens are motor. Trigeminals mixed. So cranial nerve 5, the trigeminal nerve, controls not only uh, innervation to your skin for sensation, but also it innervates the muscles that elevate your mandible or chew. The muscles of mastication, like the masseter and the temporalis, for example. Those are muscles innervated by the trigeminal nerve. You can test someone's trigeminal nerve by putting your fingers on, their, on the sides of their jaw and telling them to bite down, and you can feel their masseter muscles clench up. And you want to feel for symmetry to make sure that they're both contracting at about the same rate. Cranial nerve 7 is also known as the facial nerve. And this one is also mixed. It innervates the skin of the upper half of your face for sensation, as well as your corneas, sensory to your cornea, and it controls the muscles of facial expression. So um, you might have heard of Bell's palsy. Bell's palsy is in, uh, an infection on the facial nerve that causes uh, an, a loss of symmetry in the facial muscles. So the, one side might get real droopy. Uh, inability to close your eye, so blinking is part of facial nerve responsibility, those muscles. And uh, the eye could start to leak and get droopy uh, from that problem. So that's the facial nerve, cranial nerve 7. Cranial nerve 8 is interesting because it is uh, two nerves that are combined. And they both go to the ear. And they are the... Um, vestibular nerve and the cochlear nerve. So together, when those nerves are, those two halves are kind of wrapped up together, it's called the vestibulocochlear nerve. That's cranial nerve eight. It's divided up into the vestibular branch and the cochlear branch. Now the vestibular branch innervates the vestibular apparatus of your inner ear, which is associated with your um, control over balance and equilibrium, staying upright, uh, knowing your body's position in space, a lot of proprioception type things, um, knowing what position your body is in at any given time or whether you're moving, what direction you're moving, how quickly you're moving, how quickly you're accelerating. All of those things are um, controlled by what's called the vestibular apparatus in your inner ear. And, and, and it has assistance from other parts of your brain and body. But the vestibular branch of cranial nerve 8 
carries signals from there to let your body know about its position, let your brain know about your body's position in space and movement and whether or not you're spinning, things like that. So when you spin for a really long time, the fluid inside that vestibular apparatus keeps moving even when you've stopped. So it keeps stimulating the sensory receptors of the vestibular nerve and it makes your brain think you're still spinning even though you're not. Uh, The cochlear branch innervates the cochlea, which is the part of your ear for hearing. So sound waves striking the eardrum eventually make their way into the cochlea and stimulate sensory receptors that generate nerve signals along the cochlear branch, and they go to parts of your brain so that we can perceive sound. Uh, Again, we're going to talk about all of these in the sensation chapter or unit or episode. Uh, So... So, uh, again, I'm just touching on the nerves right now. Cranial nerve 8 is called the glossopharyngeal nerve. And it is a mixed nerve. It has both sensory and motor uh, components. And its sensory is mostly for sensation to the tongue and the throat, um, outside your ear, like what's called the pinna, uh, the outside of your ear that you can touch. Uh, Sensory for those things, but also motor control for the muscles of swallowing. Cranial nerve 10 is the vagus nerve, and this cranial nerve has a tremendous amount of responsibilities in your body. Um, It not only innervates the pharyngeal muscles uh, in the back of your throat, it also has some of the sensory components for taste. Uh, So you might see uh, sensory information to the back of your throat. You know, in addition to that, other nerves that are responsible for taste are the facial nerve and the glossopharyngeal nerve. So cranial nerves 7, 9, and 10 all contribute to your sensation of taste. So the vagus nerve is associated with it, but it also is associated with slowing down your heart rate, stimulating gastric secretions in your stomach. It, if it uh, innervates your vocal cords. of the nerve fibers of your parasympathetic nervous system run through your vagus nerve. It's associated with pulmonary, digestive, urinary function, your heart, uh, all kinds of things. The cranial nerve 10 goes all the way down your thoracic cavity into your abdominal cavity to innervate your stomach, to innervate your heart. It is a tremendous player in terms of the nervous system. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting. So someone who has an unexplained hoarseness of voice, a loss of a gag reflex, if the uvula, the little thing that hangs down in the back of your throat, deviates from side to side when you say ah, it could be a pharyngeal muscle weakness caused by a vagus nerve issue. So it's a pretty big deal as far as cranial nerves go. V-A-G-U-S, the vagus nerve. The accessory nerve is a motor nerve that is interesting because even though it's a a cranial nerve, it's not like technically a cranial nerve because it goes right down the spinal cord. And um, that's kind of not the definition of a cranial nerve, but it is considered a cranial nerve even though it might not truly be one. And it innervates the muscles of your um, upper trapezius, your levator scapula, muscles of your of your neck, 
uh, muscles that move your neck are innervated by the accessory nerve. It is cranial nerve 11. And then finally, cranial nerve 10 is the hypoglossal nerve. And it's mostly responsible for innervating the muscles of your tongue so that you can uh, create speech, you can, you can make sounds happen the way you want them to, you can move food around in your mouth when you're chewing. It helps to push food back toward your throat for, so, that, so that you can swallow, so the voluntary part of swallowing, um, all associated with the hypoglossal nerve, which is cranial nerve 12. And you might have had a neurological exam where someone's testing your cranial nerves and you don't even know it. They're having you follow your finger with your eyes or follow their finger with your eyes. And, um, and they're testing cranial nerves three, four, and six, seeing if the muscles that move your eyes work. Uh, they might shine a light in your eyes to see if your pupils constrict. That's cranial nerves two and three. They might um, be uh, saying, open up and say, ah, and they're looking at your pharyngeal muscle um, symmetry. And they're testing cranial nerve 10. They hit you in the back of the throat with a tongue depressor for your gag reflex. That's checking 9 and 10. They might just tell you to stick your tongue straight out. They're looking, if you, they're looking to see if you can't stick it out to, down the middle and it, and it gets pushed over to one side. That's a cranial nerve 12 test. So the, the cranial nerve exam is a basic neurological exam that you would do if you suspect some kind of head injury or or brain issue because the the origins of these nerves are very superficial in the part that part of the brain so they can become damaged pretty quickly all right i think that's a ton for this episode so uh what i'm going to do is i'm going to cut it off there i want to thank with with everything i've got i want to thank dr kevin petty from san diego miramar college for joining me today that was a tremendous conversation about an unbelievably interesting program he runs out there so thank you so much uh kevin and uh thanks again for productioncrate.com for the little extra music that we have in this episode and i really appreciate you listening i hope that you enjoyed it and i will talk to you next time Hey everyone, don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. Student Help, the number four, AP. There's a lot of tutor videos on there that I think could be really helpful. I also have an Instagram account and a Twitter feed with the same name. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media, with a special thanks to Bucks County Community College, McGraw-Hill Higher Education, and my family.